Hello, and welcome to Gospel Doctrine, Episode 6, Noah Prepared an Ark to the Saving of His House. I'm your host, Mark Holt, and it's my pleasure to be with you. We have a lot of really cool things to discuss today, and I can hardly wait to get to it. But first, I'd like to read an email from one of our listeners. This comes to us from Nancy from South Jordan. She writes, I am currently an inactive member of the Mormon Church. While I was raised in the church by devout parents, I was defiant and stopped going to church when I was a teenager. I am now 48 years old. I have gone to church on and off during my life, as it is really the only religion that I am somewhat knowledgeable about. I consider myself an amateur in the scriptures and very green when it comes to understanding words, concepts, how they relate to me in my life, and how so many stories, words, and simple examples can be interpreted in so many different ways. While I have heard of the story of Cain and Abel, I have never really understood it. I didn't fully understand it even after you told bits and pieces of the story. Perhaps a summary of what the story is about would be helpful at the beginning. Nancy, thank you so much for listening, and I am so touched and humbled that you would be choosing this podcast to reintroduce you to a lot of the gospel topics that you perhaps haven't thought about in some time. And it is true that when I envisioned this podcast, I envisioned it being for those teaching gospel doctrine, but I can't resist the idea that if people are getting their exposure to the gospel through this podcast, that we wouldn't make it more accessible to them. So I'm going to make a conscious effort to explain a little more at the beginning, at least to give you some context for the scriptures we use, and especially the main point of the lesson, which last week was Cain and Abel and the story of Enoch. This week is the story of Noah and Noah's Ark. I have an interesting story to tell you this week. One of my callings in my ward is Sunday school teacher over the 14 and 15 year olds. So the title of my lesson last Sunday was, How Does the Spirit Help You to Teach the Gospel? So with my class, we discussed how having the Spirit helps them to teach the gospel. And one of the things I found myself saying that I hadn't even prepared to say was, if you're going to teach by the Spirit, then you have to love the people you teach at least a little bit. And I remember looking around that room, and these are youth in my ward, kids that I've come to know, and I realized it's really important to me that all of these kids understand what I'm teaching. And I felt that love, and that's why I was able to say that. I felt like I loved all of those kids, and I really wanted them to succeed in life and have the influence of the gospel in their lives. But since then, I've reflected a lot about that message and what it might mean for my podcast. And if I want to teach by the Spirit, do I need to have love for everyone listening? And what does that mean? Because I don't know who's listening. I don't know how many people are listening. But that doesn't mean it can't be done. Obviously, there are many people in our church who have to confront exactly that challenge, from the prophet all the way down to people in our ward. And I think the biggest example would be a stake relief society president, somebody who, whose very mission, who's very calling is to love. And yet there's no way she could know everybody in her stake who's suffering, but she probably gets a pretty good handle on it over time. And so I really do want to know who's listening. And I've heard from a few of you, I've heard very touching messages from people who for one reason or another, might not get to church, or maybe they need a little bit more exposure or more adult exposure to Sunday school. 
And I couldn't be more grateful for those people listening. And I pray for you. I pray that what I say will be what you need to hear. When I'm preparing my lesson, I prepare it for someone who is like me, someone who approaches the gospel sometimes from a left-brained or a cerebral point of view, and who wants to hear something of academic interest. But that doesn't mean it's the only way to discuss these things. And so I'm going to be trying to listen to the Spirit, and it's going to be a learning process for me to figure out exactly what you need to hear and what will do you the most good. And perhaps in doing that, I can show my love for you, and that love will grow. Right now it's right, now it's right at the beginning, so I can't lay any great claim to loving my audience, but I look forward to learning what that might mean. And I'm so grateful that you're on this journey with me. As always, I'd like to encourage everyone to send in your questions. My email address is gt, as in golf tango, at gospeltoctrine.com. You can also visit us on our website, although it is very much under construction, found at www.gospeltoctrine.com. It is my goal to write a blog post for every lesson that I teach, but the podcast is my priority, and so far I've only written one blog post, and I plan on catching up at some point, hopefully this week. But check that website out, and one of these days it'll be up to date. Also, we find listeners through shares on social media and by your five-star review on iTunes. So if you like what you hear, help other people find us, and maybe they'll like it too. Every week after launching the podcast episode, I make a post about it on the Gospel Doctrine page on Facebook. You can share that. Or like I said, write us a review on iTunes. We're also on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Google Play. In addition to all of those means, we grow by word of mouth. So if you like what you hear, talk about us. Share us with your friends. And we do know that something's going right because every week we've had more listeners than the week before. We're growing slowly, but we are growing. And I couldn't be happier that all of you are here with us. And at this point in the show, we'd like to welcome into the studio award-winning photographer and student of the scriptures and of the Hebrew language and of Jewish culture in general, and a good friend, Bri Cox. Welcome to the show, Bri. Thank you. Very and, happy with what you're doing here. Oh, thanks. Yeah. And uh, we had a great response last time we brought Bri on board. I've done a couple of experimental shows, one where we taught in front of a studio audience and one where we did an interview with Bri, and they were both received pretty well. I, one thing I want to do in the future is have an actual live broadcast where people can call in, but I haven't figured out technically how to do that yet. <laughs> That'd be cool. And then my plan is uh, in four, to do this for four years, and then four years from now, do a video podcast, and I don't know how to do any of that yet, but we're, we're living and learning, and people, we're growing, our audience is slowly growing every week, so... Anyway, we're, we're grateful that everyone's joining us, and, and Bri, uh, I think we got a lot of people who are here strictly to hear you. They love you. They love you out there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, we're talking about the flood today, and if, so if I just said the flood to you, what would you, what would be the first thing that would come to your mind? Oh, so there's a, so, I mean, my favorite thing is the Old Testament, but particularly it's uh, the ancient Near East and as symbols and things pertain to both the creation, light, and the temple. And there is all of that in Noah in all sorts of layers. So the, the Noah story is a real favorite of mine. And there's some really cool stuff we can talk about that really isn't in, you know, anything that anyone can find easily or 
stitched together easily or even in even in books or anything so it'd be some really cool stuff but wait you're gonna you're gonna tell us things we don't already know (laughs) (laughs) uh real quickly in in accordance with what i was saying earlier i think i'll just give a a brief synopsis of the story of noah so noah is one of the prophets he's one of the patriarchs of the old testament and he several generations he's nine generations down from enoch whom we discussed last week and Noah receives a revelation from God that says the population of the world is so wicked that I'm going to destroy it unless they repent. And Noah is given this time frame during which he can convince people to repent. And we could talk about that a little bit later. But uh, the Bible seems to suggest, and the and one of the interpretations of Joseph Smith seemed to suggest that it was 120 years. So he had a long time. Right. To prepare the population of the land where he lived to receive the word of God, to repent and to change their ways. And they didn't do it. They mocked him. And so Noah, at the same time, was given a revelation to build the ark, a large boat with no... uh, An ark just means a basket, really, a a Uh, trunk. And so there's it's a boat with no means of propulsion. There's no sail or anything. It just floats. And... Noah builds this huge ark, and the Lord gives him the design and the dimensions. He builds this ark, and when the time is right, then the animals appear, and they all get on board, and the ark floats, and everyone else who isn't allowed on, who didn't repent, drowns. And then he's afloat for many days. Eventually, the water subside. Noah settles to earth and begins repopulating, releases the animals. They all begin repopulating the earth. So that's the story of the flood. So go ahead with what you were going to, the first yeah. thing you were going to, the point so, you were going to make. And all the things you mentioned there, I just brings back, I mean, it brings a lot of thoughts, a lot of stuff we can talk about. But I think the first thing to kind of start off with is that like all Old Testament stories, they're more symbolic than they are scientific, right? Because all of this is meant, it's not meant to, just like we talked about in the creation story. So let's, let's uh, go over that again for anyone who didn't hear that episode. Yeah. So in the creation story, with our Western minds, which really kind of started with Hellenization and the Greeks, like we want to know where stuff comes from. But in the ancient Near East, it is what's the purpose of things and what's my purpose. And it's the same thing with... So we feel like the story might not be true because certain details aren't in it. But for them, the important details they, were in it. Yep. They weren't thinking about any of that or cared about any of that. Yeah. None of that came about for much later. So when when this the creation story that we know about the Lord would say, here's what this thing does. And that's the information that they needed. And the story was complete for that audience. And for us, we feel like, wait, what do you mean the Lord created light? Does it come from the sun? Does it come from the stars? Is it the light from the magma inside? You know, is it coming from under the ground? So those are the questions that come up for us, especially with our modern scientific viewpoint. And that's specifically regarding the creation. None of those questions would have come up for them. And so that's why the story is told differently than we might expect. Yeah. So I think of it a lot in terms like, you know how we have the uh, the Book of Mormon and it says a lot how there was two records, right? There's the spiritual record and there's also this other record, the sealed record that we don't get yet. Oh, yeah. Okay. Right. And in that record, there's all sorts of other details, a lot of which would be, you know, genealogy and, you know, history. Uh-huh. But the Book of Mormon isn't supposed to be history. It's spiritual content. And similarly, the Bible wasn't written to be a history or a scientific journal. It was written to give spiritual content. And so in that same sense, it's not like, you know, we talked about it before. In fact, 
this is actually good. I, <laughs> I was re-listening to that podcast and I made a, a mistake. I said uh, BC instead of AD. Oh, yeah. And I know, I mean, I hadn't made that mistake because I was thinking of the date of Pi, which is 600 BC because uh-huh. it was Second Kings. Uh, and the Midrash, which is all the oral tradition, even though I mentioned that it was written about the age of the councils, which is all, you know, two to 400 AD, somehow I slipped and still said BC. But the point is, is that there's I kind think of you just don't records. know your stuff. <laughs> yeah. I was like, that guy doesn't know his stuff. He said BC and said AD. But anyway, the point is, is there's, there's various records with various levels of detail. And the whole point of a lot of this early stuff in the ancient Near East is about symbols. And that's why I love it so much. And that's why I like particularly this whole section is because everything is far more symbolic and the symbols transform the meaning to our day. As opposed to the way we talk today is we just say things literally and then we take it literally. But there's even some symbols in the New Testament, right? Like when Christ calls himself the gate and nobody goes, oh, he must be made of wood and has hinges. They're like, no, we get what he's saying. But there's, so the Noah story is full of that. Okay. And so one of the first things is the idea of numbers. So it's not so much that the entire story is an allegory, but that certain language within the story is meant to be allegorical or metaphorical rather than literal. Yeah, and there's a whole form of narrative. We're like, gather around, everybody, I got a story to tell you. And they're like, there's a story about this guy, and his name always means things, and then this means things, and that means things, yes. and everything means things. And so we get a lot, like, I don't fully understand the whole idea of people living 900 years and all this in the Old Testament, but there's one of the things my Hebrew teacher pointed out many years ago was that they lived in a a system of base 60. So they don't really... Which is re- where actually where our minutes and seconds come from. Right, yeah. We have a lot of six, base 60 still today, like 360 degrees in a circle and 60 minutes in an hour. Yes. And if you're a shooter, there's like minutes of angle and everything's yes. in... So a lot of their numbers aren't literal and a lot of them have meaning and I'm not going to pretend I know the meaning of all the numbers. You know, so when you say like 120 years, a lot of these things are either divisible by the number 60 or by 60 months almost exactly every single time. So a lot of, so really what we're saying is the big time span or when the flood lasted for 40 days, 40 nights. The um, rain, yeah. The rain did. The actual flood lasted for about a year. Yeah. Whether you go, it's a solar year or a lunar year. It's either a year and 10 days or a year exactly, but basically it's a full year. Anyway, none of that matters nearly as much as some of the symbols. So I think the biggest context first is where Noah fits in the stories before and the stories after. And so right before Noah, we have a really wicked society um, where everybody is described as having a lot of self-importance. And I kind of think about that as, you know, like the self-esteem movement today. We talked a little bit about self-esteem and self-worth and the difference on the last time. And so here, everybody was so self-important, nothing else mattered. And interestingly enough, today those people that are measured that have the highest self-esteem are in prison, right? Because if you feel like you're so important... You're the only one that matters. Your viewpoint is the only one we're checking in It's okay to do all these things wrong to this other person. So, one, we have this really super wicked society where everybody's self-important. And then we have right after... And there's also... Midrash talks a lot about um, um, a lot of sexual immorality and idol worship and things like that. But then right immediately after, we have Nimrod... And Nimrod founds uh, Babel, which or Babylon, which means confusion. And Nimrod's a really wicked king. 
And his whole purpose was to usurp God. He wanted to, he got tired of hunting animals. He hunted people. He got tired of that. And now he wanted to storm heaven and kill God and sit on his throne. So he wants to build this anti-temple, a tower, just like we talked about last time, how the mountain is always considered a temple. He wants to build his own uh, temple and get to heaven his own way. And in this sense, he's a tyrant. And now instead of people being self-important, they have zero importance. And it's almost like a communist regime where nobody has any importance. And the whole idea of being of one language is that they're of one mind. They have one purpose, one purpose only, and that's build this tower. And if somebody dies in the building of it, everybody around them just pushes them into the wall, covers them with bricks and continues on. Like there is zero importance on life. Yeah. And uh, for the information of those listening, this lesson covers... Uh, just not, Noah. No, it does. Oh. It covers not only uh, the story of Noah, but then oh, the story of the Tower of Babel as well. So, oh, nice. Yeah, these these two are very much tied together. Yeah, because I think those and two... And the story of the Tower of Babel is that they the men of the earth started to build this tower with which they could reach God. And it, the, some of the things you just said about Nimrod are not specifically in the Bible, so you're bringing up from Jewish... A lot of Jewish, Midrash and Jewish tradition. Yeah, from Jewish yep. tradition. But... They wanted to reach the heavens with this tower, and it says in the Bible that the Lord confounded their languages. And we don't know whether that happened as a miracle, as a miracle instantaneously. They one day showed up for work and couldn't talk to each other, or whether they were so divided spiritually that they fell apart and then they moved apart from each other, and then they started their languages started drifting apart. Now the the account of the Jaredites in the Book of Mormon would seem to suggest that it happened more quickly than the divergence of languages happens today, which takes place over generations. Right. So we don't know 100% for sure, but modern revelation would seem to suggest that it did happen miraculously. But even so, it's still a powerful symbol of the Lord is saying, if you want to be an anti-Zion and an anti-temple, as you put it, then I'm going to show you what that feels like, which is you can't even talk to each other. And one of the one of the interesting things about that symbol for me, and we'll come back to Babel after we talk about Noah, but yeah, one of the interesting things about that for me is I think the Lord, the pure Adamic language is one where the Lord communicates more than just words. Our words are a poor approximation of how we used to be able to speak to each other. And we used to be able to, there, there was never any confusion and how any two people would talk to each other, and they understood perfectly, and you couldn't lie. And then the confusion of the languages is where any confusion came in. So when the languages were confounded, it meant that people could be misunderstood. And I don't know whether that was the beginning of misunderstanding in general, but I think that was a symbol of the fact that your language, your ways are not my ways, and your language is not my language. Oh, yeah. The, uh, there's a play on words on when the Lord says, confound the language. It's uh, literally stir the lips. And lips can mean your mouth or the banks of ground. So basically, in effect, like he's scattering the people both across the ground and also changing their language. Oh, interesting. And But confusion, the reason why I think that's such a powerful comparison to Noah is because... Uh, I mean, Satan's tool is confusion, right? This is his... This Father is his of lies. City. Yep, and if he can get us confused... He doesn't want to just tell us that murder is okay. He just says, you know, you're okay without God. And that gets you a couple degrees off and a couple degrees off. And then pretty soon you're building a tower to heaven and trying to usurp power. Yeah. And it's almost like a 
there's almost a story arc between the story of the city of Zion yeah, and, and the Zion's Tower of Babel. This. Yes. Uh, so Sorry, I, keep going. I was going to say, like, um, there's the Isaiah scripture, right? Knowing, like, calling darkness light, light darkness yeah. up down. And that's, that's the idea of, like, being in a, being swished around in water where you don't know if you get hit by a tidal wave sometimes. And sometimes you can't find the ground to push off of because you're, you're all turned around. That's the idea of confusion. Where Zion is the temple, and that's the opposite, the actual antithesis of Babel. And Zion literally means uh, the high place or the dry place above the flood. And so again, it's a symbol of the temple. So we have Enoch before, you know, establishing Zion. We have uh, Noah, who builds an ark, and all of the measurements, um, everything basically points out that the ark is a temple. It's built in three layers, and all temples ancient world there's always these three rooms and you have to climb between each room you go from room to room to room and as you go up you get you gain in light and he's there with his family so on one hand we have before noah um everybody's self-important me 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 afterward uh tyranny nobody's important and in the middle we have noah which is the perfect social unit which is a family and particularly a family in the temple interesting so that's, I think, one of the first big keys. And then there's this whole other <laughs> layer, which just opens up the whole idea of temple and light. And that is the, the, this idea of the Tzohar. And it's this Jewish tradition of a glowing stone that Noah was given, which sounds on the face of it like a little bit of a screwy story. It's like, well, that just, that's just mysticism or whatever. But when you hear the story of... From an LDS perspective. Yeah, from the LDS perspective of Mahanare Moriankamer, the brother of Jared, where he also had a glowing stone for which he used on his boat to travel. Then you go, oh, maybe there's <laughs> some truth of this. And and uh, even though the Jaredites were several generations after Noah, for them, that would have been a very right recent then. story. Yep. Super, and they would have known all had, about it. They would have had those legends, and that may have been assuming that this legend is correct, that may have been the inspiration for him to make his request and right. receive those stones. So a quick, I think, it, so a quick synopsis on the brother Jared, just for people who aren't familiar, and I think it really helps a lot. Like he, he has to build these barges, he has three questions for the Lord, and they're basically questions of life, like how do we see, you know, how are we gonna discern, that's the like, you know, um, how, how are we gonna be led, how are we gonna be guided, and how are we going to be kept alive? And the Lord gives him the answers of two. So he's like, you know, I'm going to give you the breath of life. Basically, you know, air. That's the big symbol there. And then the next one is, you know, but how am I going to know where to go? And the Lord's like, you pray and I'm going to lead you. I'm going to guide you. So you don't have to worry about that. Great. And he's like, but what am I going to do to see? What do I need to do for light, for discernment? And this is where the Lord says, you know, I can't help you there. You have to do something and then I do something and then you do something. And the whole idea of gaining light is that we have to first do some work, climb some steps, gain some light, and then the Lord adds to the light. And then it clicks. He gets what he has to do and he goes to the mountain and mountain always is a symbol for temple. And in this case, it's called the mountain Shalem for peace or peace offering. So he goes to the temple of peace offering and he starts by first refining some stones. He takes some stones and he adds light basically being the actor refiner, removing the dross from the silver and doing the best he can to add light. And then he climbs up the mountain and then he prays 
and he gets as high as he can up the mountain, at which point the Lord appears to him, but you can't see the Lord other than his hand because this is a temple story and he's at the veil and all you can see is his hand and the Lord touches the stones, they light up, he asks some questions back and forth, at which point then he, in a sense, is through the veil and he can see all of the Lord and he can see then at that point from the beginning of time to the end of time. Mm-hmm. And now he has stones and there are particularly two stones per boat in this case, which there's a lot of code for numbers in Hebrew and I haven't been able to prove this, but I personally believe, and I always like to quote either rabbis from the Midrash or current modern day rabbis that you know write commentary, but this is one I can't prove, but I personally believe that the number two is a code for priesthood, that they traveled with the priesthood light. And it kind of ties in here in a minute. So then go back to Noah. So Noah, he gets this stone and the way to give you a little quick run up on this. And this is a very Mormon story in, in Jewish Midrash. So it starts with Adam. Adam gets the stone initially. Adam is kicked out of the Garden of Eden. And the Lord sends him three angels called the three sent ones. And one of them is named uh, Raziel the Revelator. And he gives him a stone that's called the, the Tzohar, which has this light that was kept behind the veil that you can't see. But the light has a very specific description. It's called, or it's described as ex, uh, extending from one end of the universe to the other and from beginning of time to the end of time. And the idea is that when you see with our light today, like with the sun or anything that's our physical light, you can only see in this dimension and this amount of time. But if you can see with the light of God, this primordial light, then you can see from one end of the universe to the other. And so distance time, and time cease to be obstacles to yep. your vision. And so he's given this stone to help him along his path of light, his, his way back to the tree of life. And then, you know, it continues through the various prophets. And so Noah has it. And the interesting thing about Noah is that he... He hangs it in what we'd call probably the Holy of Holies of the Ark. And from there, it gives light to all the Ark. And I've got here a direct quote from the Midrash, which is really interesting. So they're talking about this, this phrase in Genesis. It's Genesis 6.16. And there's a little footnote in the LDS translation, uh, or not the translation, but the LDS edition, because it's the King James Version. Um that mentions this stone, the Sohar. And so in the Midrash, they're asking the question, they're like, what does this mean? The various rabbis are talking. And Rabbi Levi says, it's a precious stone. During the whole 12 months that Noah was in the ark, he did not require light, but he had the polished gem, which he hung up. And when it was dim, he knew that it was day. And when it, and when it shone, he knew that it was night. So the way that it glowed, the way that it shone, he knew if it was day or night. Because the point is, this was a pretty torrential storm, and it was so dark that it was said that you couldn't tell if the sun was up or not up. It was just dark. The clouds were that continually. thick. The clouds were that thick. They couldn't see. <laughs> they couldn't tell if the sun or But this, this gave them the ability. And I love the symbolism in here where when we go to the temple, and I always like the definition from Abraham where he creates an altar and he calls it Jehovah Jahari, which is in the temple there is vision which is that when you're in the temple, you get to see out and above your problems. The problems are kind of like the, the mist, the darkness, the, the sin, the unbelief, everything that makes it hard for us to see our way. But when you're in the temple, you're above all that and you can see out. And here's Noah with his family in the ark and the problems still exist, right? The, the flood's still there. The flood doesn't go away, but, but he's the got ark light. becomes the high place. Yep, and the ark is the high place. It is the high place or the dry place above the flood. It is Zion. 
and he has the light of God leading him, and they're okay. So that's in that sense, the ark is the temple. And if we look at modern temples today and we wonder what what does the story of Noah have to teach me? It's to look around us and see the similarities between what's going on in the world and a rising water of flood. Exactly. And and what there are problems how don't... can you float above that, which yep. is by going to where the light shines and just as in I mean for me, I go back to the children of Israel and the Exodus. By day, they had the pillar of cloud and by night, a pillar of fire. And that yep. was their temple. Their temple was the wilderness. Their temple was their wandering. So we have a literal temple, but we're still wandering through life. We have a metaphorical flood instead of a literal flood, but we're still subject to the rising waters of sin. Yes. And I, and I just love that Sometimes, I mean, we really do live in the absolute best of times, but there's a lot of evil and a lot of problems and a lot of things we face that aren't even necessarily, they're just problems. And when I leave the temple, those problems are still there, but I have a new enthusiasm and a new sense of, I don't know, a vision where it's like, okay, I'm good. I'm good. I, I know where to go. Yeah. And then I'll return and I'll get a new vision. And Because and, perspective, if we have the perspective of God then even death ceases to be as traumatic as it once was because we see it as merely walking through a door, as the prophet, as Joseph Smith put it. Yes. So let me tell you a little bit more about this Sohar stone because it really ties in interestingly. So then eventually Abraham gets it and Abraham wears it around his neck. Uh, an angel fastens it into a necklace and he wears it. And when people look upon it, they're healed. And then it continues down, and it goes from... And is that the same stone as the Urim and Thummim? Um, I've had thoughts about that, but I think it's different. And I'll tell you why. Because then it goes from him, it goes to uh, Joseph. Joseph in the coat of many colors as it gets passed down. And one of the really interesting things about him is there's some scriptures in Genesis uh, 44 where Joseph is called a diviner, and he uses a divining cup. And the Jewish tradition says that when he wanted an answer, he wanted to solve someone's dream in the, in when he was in jail or when he was sitting on the throne, his second in command to Pharaoh, and he wanted to discern, he had the silver cup that he would pull out. He'd put the stone in there and he'd bury his head in this cup and he would get a vision and get enlightenment, which is how the whole, this is where, you know, there's, Satan always has a copy. So, you know, the gypsies came up with the... Uh, the crystal ball. Um, there's all the like looking into your bottom of your cup for tea leaves and trying to discern. This is all where it came from was from Joseph. But the interesting thing is, is that story is kind of an odd story unless you know the story of Joseph Smith. And we kind of skip over this part of Joseph Smith a lot because it also seems a little weird where he just had a stone and he'd bury his head into his hat and then he would then be able to Get just a vision, out of his or, out of his mouth would come the translation of the Book of Mormon. Yep, he could translate, and sometimes, and then the more the better he got. He didn't always need it, but that was, and that's why I think it's different than the Urim and Thummim specifically. But I mean, Urim and Tumim are basically symbols of light as well, and they're so lights they're imperfections. Effect. Yeah, so they're basically also talking about that of light. So then, anyway, Joseph gets buried with it in his tomb. Moses, when he's called to be a prophet, you know, he goes out to Midian. Uh, he gets the priesthood from Jethro, is taught, gets a vision. It's called to be a, a prophet. And he's sent to uh, Joseph's tomb to get the stone. And when he gets it, and this is, my, this is what I want to get to, is he calls it the Nur Tamid, 
which is eternal light. And he uses it in the Holy of Holies of the traveling temple, and he hangs it on the ark between the two cherubims. And so we kind of get this progression of light at this point, right? So we have, and this is what I like about the Noah story and how all this ties together is we get Adam is given coats of light as he starts on his path of light, which is a like, I, I imagine like a laser beam because it's straight and narrow. And, and he goes from, in effect, like room to room. And first he's given, you know, a cap of light, which is like a rainbow or you know, a, a bow above your head. And then there he goes and gets the, the perfect light, which are seven vessels of, of olive oil. And the word sohar, actually, uh, the root is yitzar, which means olive oil burning light, which is really interesting. And I've actually gone through, just speaking of uh, Sohar, I went through all of the Old Testament. I could never find the word window where it's ever translated as Sohar. And I've never found the word Sohar ever translated as window. Window is always another word. And Sohar is really, it literally means uh, noon or noonday, if you want to break it down. Right, so then you got the the perfect light, seven lights, the seven lamps of olive oil, and then you go into the last room where you have the nertarmid, uh, the eternal lamp or the eternal light, which is the light of God, which at which point you get the vision of heaven and earth and beginning of time, end of time, one end of the universe or the other. Interesting. Let's go to a little more basic level. I have a question about the flood. I mean, let's look at human history from the perspective maybe of God. And for me, the first question that comes up is, why wouldn't God just save the population of the earth rather than destroying them? Why did God send a flood? Do you have any um, so Joseph opinions Smith on that? In, uh, Joseph Smith talks about how lots of people were translated before the flood. So it wasn't like everybody was killed. If you were righteous, a lot of these people were translated and taken right up to heaven. Yes, and so that's one important answer. Yes, but why would, why would God bother to do that rather than leaving these righteous people on the earth and having them, like right now, today, we're called to be in the world, but not of the world. In other words, we're called not to separate ourselves from the world. Right. And at that time, they were called, literally, pulled away from the world. Why do you think God did it that way? Do you, I mean, we don't know. What do yeah, you think? Yeah, so uh, the Midrash goes into more details of how wicked they really were, and... There's even some stories about Noah, like the whole phrase about him being shut up into the ark was the idea that he still was hoping that when people saw the rain, they would repent. Or it just at some moment they would repent, and he just didn't quite believe yeah, that Yeah, moment they after repent. moment comes, and he keeps thinking, and maybe when this happens, they'll repent. Maybe when this happens, they'll repent. And right, and so the phrase never is enough. he's shut up. Like the Lord literally calls him into the ark and kind of locks it where he can't go in and out. And it's, it's like, nope, <laughs> time to go in the ark. This is, you know, they're not going to repent. Yeah. And we could also say, you know, a lot of the same wickedness we see around the world at various times in history and even today in many yeah. ways. This is, I, I mean, I have my own opinion on this and I just thought I'd get your viewpoint before I answered it. I think uh, as I read the, I mean, and I'm going to go back a little bit to last week's lesson, but in the seventh chapter of Moses, God tells Enoch that in none, first of all, Enoch saw something that not even Moses saw. Moses saw, God kept referring in his vision to Moses to that that earth upon which thou standest, and same thing to, to uh, Abraham. But Enoch refers to the multiplicity of God's creations and even says, 
if you could take all the particles from this earth and even millions of earths like this one, that would not be a beginning to thy creations. So Enoch had some sense of the scale of God's creations. And so that's why it's so much more meaningful when God said to Enoch, in none of, the, in none of my creations have I seen so great wickedness as reigns today upon the earth. So God is merciful and God is just. And when I look at the story of the flood, I think, how is this merciful to kill everyone? It's yes. merciful to, it's got to be merciful to two people. Number one, the people who are living. And number two, the people who have yet to be born. Yeah, and that's the key. And it's, and it's obvious to see that it's merciful to the people who have yet to be born. Because if they're born into this sinful tradition that's more wicked than any of God's other creations then they're going to they're going to be taught that wickedness they're going to learn it's be, it's going to become part of them and that's what they're stuck with and secondly how is it merciful to the people who are alive well as we were speaking earlier about perspective and this is just tough i mean this is just one of those ideas that if you believe in god you struggle with but god doesn't see death in the same way we do god sees death as a door and if he has a place where he can put wicked people together, I'm, and then this is just me guessing, but he pulls the righteous out of it in order that their wickedness can fully ripen. And, and on some level, I think that makes them not as responsible as they would have been otherwise. In other words, it increases his ability to extend mercy to everyone all over the earth if they're receiving a lot of this wickedness from their world rather than from their own choices. And if he puts them all together, then they can't, influence the eternal salvation of more people than are already wicked. And, you know, God knows all this stuff. I don't, but I'm guessing that this is his way of showing mercy by having everyone, having a brief time in the history of the earth when wickedness could be concentrated and then have it end suddenly. And rather than having them infect a bunch of righteous people, allow those righteous people to fully mature in their righteousness and then graduate. In other words, join the city of Enoch and then send the flood and give them ample opportunity. And I imagine, you know, I'm not saying these people are going to be exalted, but maybe some of them will. So maybe some of them will receive the preaching of spirits beyond the veil. And maybe that was why God ended their lives, what we might think of as prematurely, so that they could have that opportunity. And then, then he could make a fresh start on the earth. And the only thing I have to really support this idea is, well, first of all, the whole idea that the flood was the baptism of the earth, right? which we see in various places in Mormon doctrine, that the earth is a spirit, or the earth is something alive and has a spirit, and the earth needed to... And it's also a symbol for the human race, and it's a symbol for each person. And I'm going to talk about this more... Uh, this is just a little teaser for when I go into my series on Isaiah, but there are parallels between the life of Christ the eternal life of man in the plan of salvation, the life of Adam, the history of the nation of Israel, and the history, the spiritual history of the planet Earth. And so the planet Earth has a baptism just like we all do. And that baptism is the flood. And why does the Earth need to be baptized so much? It's interesting, the prayer of Enoch. So we're back again in Moses chapter 7, and this is verse 49. Well, it starts in verse 49, but it goes on from there. And once again, I encourage you to read this chapter. But Moses has is filled with such woe. He sees the 
suffering of the earth. And from then till the almost the end of the chapter, his entire prayer is, when will you relieve the suffering of the earth? And he actually, his prayer is so powerful, he binds the Lord into a covenant. And it's the precursor for the Abrahamic covenant, which is the covenant of Enoch saying, because of you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And Enoch has this wonderful revelation, this wonderful prayer. And I believe he suffered so greatly from seeing the earth suffer that God said, I will bring to pass the the baptism of the earth so that it can be forgiven and the beginning of the the relief can start. And we know that Enoch saw Noah's day because he specifically asks, please show me that the children of Noah will be blessed again in the in Moses chapter 7. So I hope that goes a little bit of the way towards answering that question. First of all, the idea that the flood was not solely the wrath of God. Or whenever we hear about the wrath of God, it's really also the mer- the mercy of God. God never acts fully in wrath because his wrath is always mercy. So the, the wrath of God coming down against sin is the mercy of God keeping people from committing sin. It's the one and the same thing. And the flood is a perfect demonstration of that. It's the mercy of God preventing sin and yet allowing people the greatest opportunity for forgiveness and relieving the suffering of the earth together with all of the other wonderful symbolism that we're going to discuss. Yeah, I was going to add, there's some good quotes to support that, um, where church leaders, starting with Joseph Smith, have just talked about, uh, and even some scriptures in, or even some scriptures in the Old Testament, where it just basically says that the children that were going to be born, had there not been a flood, would have been, you know, had no chance. Like the world was so wicked that those new children coming had literally no chance except for to live in wickedness. And so that the flood was a, an act of mercy because now all these new generations have a fresh start. And on the idea of mercy in the flood, um, going back to the creation, all the creation symbols is kind of keep perpetuating through, particularly through the ancient Near East. And right, the earth is created just like man. And you're talking about that. There's all these same symbols. So you have earth, which is in Hebrew, tohu vavohu, or or unformed matter chaos plus light equals the earth and man is dirt plus light breath of life equals uh, nephesh or a soul or or adam for a man and just like man has to be baptized by water and baptized by fire the earth has to go through the same and when you see water and fire together that's always then another symbol for heaven and for mercy and for justice where water is always associated with mercy and water and fire, rather, is associated with justice. And so it makes perfect sense to say that this was a merciful flood and where the the baptism of fire might be more of a justice and this element. Is, yes, and this is uh, something two weeks ago that I brought up, which was the fall, much like the atonement, the fall is a proxy sacrifice, except that this sacrifice was worked out by Adam, and we accept it. The reason we don't talk about the fall being a proxy sacrifice is we've already accepted it. But following the fall, following the first great proxy sacrifice, there's this world event of destruction of water. Following the atonement, there's another world event of fire. And that's yet to ha- occur, but it is prophesied that the world will be burned in fire. And so they both have their corresponding 
catastrophic events and together they equal heaven. They, yeah. But instead of bringing the earth to heaven, they turn the earth into heaven. Right. So that's interesting because if water equals mercy and fire equals justice, then those two proxy sacrifices working on people will turn us into heavenly beings, will make us heavenly rather than bringing us to heaven. Yeah, and this might be a good time to bring up the idea of the rainbow because rain is always associated with a blessing, right? If there's rain, we're alive. We yeah, can live. We our have crops, crops will grow. We can continue to live. Even here in Utah, we always kind of hope we get enough water in the mountains that we can yeah. sustain for the next year. And in, and in Cape Town right <laughs> yeah. now, they're, uh, they hit what's called day zero, where all of their, their city exists solely on dam water. And they're now at day zero, meaning they have zero days left of water they can pump. And so now they have to turn off all their faucets and walk to get water and fill up buckets every day and walk back. Doesn't matter how rich you are in Cape Town. Oh, uh, interesting. Well, I shouldn't say they are there right now. In April, they'll hit day zero unless it rains there. And so we have a very modern example of yep. that idea, which is without blessing from heaven, none of us last very long. Yeah, because today we kind of feel like, well, water comes from a tap, right? You just turn the tap on and we have water. But we're very much the same where water comes from heaven. We can, Yeah, we can extend... With the ancient Israelites, God gave them a one-day grace period. We can extend that grace <laughs> period a little bit through technology, but at some point, no matter how good we are at managing our environment, we need God. We need the blessings of heaven. We need rain. Yeah. So Talk about the rainbow. So if there's rain, you have blessings. If you have no rain, you're in a famine, and that's usually associated with the spiritual famine as well as crops, right? There's, so rain is always the idea of blessings or mercy from heaven, the windows of heaven. And so here we have the flood, which is uh, 40 days of an actual flood, but it's really a full year of just darkness and rain. So it's like mercy in droves, <laughs> in a sense, where we can still call it mercy, but it, it wipes out everybody. It's like a war. And... So side note, it kills is, everybody is, off. Mercy, is water representative of mercy and fire is justice or is yep. it the other way around? No. Yeah. So, so like mercy or, uh, it's like mercy and water and Jehovah are all related. Okay. So it's like Jesus, Jehovah gives us our mercy where justice, fire and Elohim, you know, is where justice is required. Interesting. So and that's like that we've talked about the name of heaven is Shamaim, which is a contraction of those two words or a, a conjunction rather of heaven or I mean of uh, water and fire together. So here we've got all this water. And the, one of the th things I like about Noah is very first thing flood ends. He lands. Very first thing he does is he builds an altar and gives thanks. And that's just a little side note because I feel like in life, I like it. There's, I have a list of prophets that prayed first thing. This then this has happened. First thing they prayed and gave thanks. And Noah's one of those. And what I like about that is, you know, there's a lot of times, even when we just pray for something little, you know, I really need this. I can't find it. You know, Lord, help me find this thing. And we find it. Woohoo. And we go off about our life. Or I think about, you know, how the Lord heals people. And then, you know, only one turns back and gives thanks. Yeah. Jesus heals 10 lepers. With the 10 lepers. And it's like 10% showed thanks. 90% didn't. So I always want to try to make sure I'm on the side of quickly giving thanks and giving thanks immediately. 
That's yep. interesting because finding something that's lost is what came to my mind as you were talking. <laughs> I have that habit now too. I've I've specifically taught myself because I'm quite often losing stuff. And yeah. so it's pretty common that I will pray, God, help me find this. And it's also pretty common that when I find it, my first instinct is to think, I found it. <laughs> yeah. And... It was right where I thought it was. Right. It's it's where I should have looked all along. All along. Why but I, I prayed before I found it. And so my now I've taught myself as soon as I find if I prayed before I found it, then I don't get to just run off and be happy. I have to stop and acknowledge that God's hand was in it. Whether or not I mean, I shouldn't say whether or not it was, whether or not I can see how it was. Yeah. And whether or not I think that I would have found it without praying. But that is an acknowledgement that God's hand truly is upon all the little details of our lives. And maybe that means yeah. he helped me lose it. Who knows? But <laughs> but so, no, yeah, so you, like, you, you, you can't get pray for something, then get it, and then not pray in thanks before enjoying it. That doesn't work. Yeah, and I'm self-employed, so I don't have a regular salary. My, you know, it depends on week to week, month to month. And so I may pray for a great week, you know, and some great sales yes. and some awesome clients and a great month and a great year. But I have to also be very quick to also thank the Lord when I get those great clients that are grateful and thankful and pay me well. And I move on, you know, and I can just, if I, I feel like the faster I'm grateful, the faster the next blessings come. So that's one of the big things I get from Noah immediately right off the ark, builds an altar, gives thanks. Okay. Um, then where does the so, so rainbow then, come in? So this ties in with the altar. So then the Lord... Then says, no, I'm entering into a covenant with you and I'm never again going to flood the earth and floods a Hebrew. It's a word meaning war. It's an implement of war. So it's kind of a play on words saying, I'm not going to start a war with you with the flood again. And as a sign, I give you the rainbow and we get this rainbow. And I think people get this wrong where they go, is this the first rainbow ever? Was there ever a rainbow before? What about physics and light? And yeah, rainbow is a natural <laughs> yeah. product whenever light hits water diffused in the air. Right. It's and a so prism. That's not the point of the rainbow at okay, all. Okay, what is the point? So the big thing is there's two things Noah had when he's in the ark. He has the Tsohar, this this glowing stone called the the dual light, or what I like to refer to. I when I hear two, I think priesthoods. It's the priesthood light in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, and he's surrounded by rain. And what a rainbow is, is a combination of light plus rain. And when we talk about creation, the definition of creation is dead matter plus light. That's how we get the earth, that's how we get man, and that's how we get the rainbow. And so the Lord is coming and saying, I'm the creator. And he's depicted in Revelations, uh, the Lord, as being himself, almost like a glowing stone sitting on a throne with a rainbow on his head. And his ministers are described as, there's an angel in Revelations described as having a rainbow on his head. And it's a sign of being a creator. The Nazareans, uh, as he newly talks about, um, wore a bow on their head when they go to the temple. And so it's the same word, uh, keshet in Hebrew is bow. It's the same exact word as a bow and arrow. Okay. And this is... So the reason we call it rainbow is because it looks like a bow from a bow and arrow. Yep, and there's literally no word in Hebrew for rainbow, but in context, you know exactly that it's a rainbow. Oh, so it's just called a bow. It's just a bow. Okay. So the Lord put a bow in the air, and this is the other big key. So one, the rainbow is a sign of creation, and it's a sign that the Lord is the creator. But the second thing is it's the Lord saying, I come in peace. 
And there's some really interesting stuff uh, in both Midrash and also Akkadian, Babylonian. There's always these uh, scenes depicted. The Midrash talks about how the bow is backwards. So it's pointed, instead of being pointed downwards towards man. It's pointed up. He's pointing it towards himself. Yeah. So to give you an idea, there's like some stone inscriptions, you know, with Akkadian from Babylonia and Assyria in these various times where this is a very common symbol where you have maybe a battle and you have these men of strength and you can think of, uh, you know, like these uh, Book of Mormon stories, these men with all these muscles and they're shooting arrows into the air. And, and then you see all these dead bodies with arrows sticking out of their heads. And, and it's just, and as you move down through the, through the story, it ends with one king defeated and he's kneeling before the other king and he's bringing him gifts. He's giving him offerings, just like Noah does. He builds an altar. He's praying to the Lord. He's giving him his gifts. He's burning a sacrifice. And the, the king that won, the king to show that there's an end of hostility, has his bow turned backwards. It's holding it like a staff, but it's turned backwards. It's in effect, like if you and I were at war and we had swords, and I said, you know, I come in peace, Mark, and I would bring my sword with the hilt towards you and the blade toward me. Basically, there's no way for me to stab you. And right. That is. So it's a sign of peace from God. Saying, it's a sign of peace from God. We've had hostilities. You've been hostile towards me, and the hostility is over. Then the hostility is over. And never as long again as am this sign flood. is here, then. Yep. And that's so. It's it's a symbol of the Creator. It's a symbol. I am over you. I am watching out for you. I am the all powerful one, and you have my word that the hostilities are over. Yeah. That if you repent. You will, the promise is, is extended to you that if you will repent, you will be forgiven and not destroyed. Right, and we're told that as long as we see a rainbow, that the end of the earth isn't coming. Yeah, or in the year that the rainbow right. appears. <laughs> yeah, right. which is a, a Mormon, a bit of Mormon folklore that may or I'm not, I'm not 100% sure Me what I think of it, but it's interesting to think about. Right. So let me just show you. I've got some Akkadian pictures here, and you can see, and right, we've got a king Who's one? A king that's. And for uh, those listening, I'll put the I'll put these pictures on the yeah, gospeldoctrine.com website. You'll see it under a post for this week's lesson. So you have a king that's kneeling. In the second picture, the king is bringing him gifts. And what you notice is that this first king has his bow turned backwards, is aiming at himself. And this is a very common sign. I mean, a bow is a sign of military might. It's a sign of being a hunter. The Lord is often called a, a fisherman or a hunter. And there's Satan's counterfeit for everything. Like Satan has a counterfeit for the temple. Satan has a counterfeit for, I mean, even some of these Jewish things like the, the glowing stones. But, he has a, but he's also, you know, we have Nimrod's called the hunter of man. So the let's, great hunter. So let's, that's the story of Noah. And uh, Noah received the covenant that God was at peace with him. In other words, you're going to be blessed. And this rain, the idea of light mixed with rain is the creation of blessings. And these blessings are going to extend forever. And Noah, the just as Abraham's covenant was kept through his son Isaac, Enoch received that same covenant that through your lineage will all the earth be blessed, specifically through his ninth great-grandson Noah, will uh, your seed will continue and that at the beginning of the of the seventh chapter of moses enoch receives that same covenant that through your seed will all the seed of the earth be blessed and that's why enoch prays specifically about noah and so noah 
begins to repopulate the earth. And once again, people quickly, the population quickly grows. And so we talked earlier about Nimrod. Nimrod is a name mentioned in the Bible, but he's not mentioned centrally in the story of the Tower of Babel. So this is all Jewish tradition. And it's interesting to put a, you know, rather than just have a bunch of bad people building a tower, it's it's interesting to put a bad guy at the at the top of it. it yeah. I don't think I don't think it makes the story any less valid. It's it's more fun. So no, and if anything, um, it adds resolution. Yeah, right? we have the same story. It's just, it, the story doesn't change, but now we have deeper resolution, or yeah. we can feel the symbols better. Yeah, and that adds more meaning. So let's like, talk about Nimrod. So Nimrod, and a good source for Nimrod it, uh, is Josephus. Josephus talks quite a bit about Nimrod. And uh, right now, Brian's showing me a book called Josephus, The Complete Works. So we'll add yeah. that to our bibliography for this so, week's lesson. Flavius Josephus was uh, almost a contemporary of Christ. He was about... A historian, Jewish uh, historian. Just after Christ passed away is when he was yeah. born. And he writes a lot about ancient Near East as well as all the way up through everything. But he's got a big section on Nimrod. There's a bunch in Midrash. But the big thing is that Nimrod uh, was... As about as evil as you can get. He's considered a tyrant and an evil king. And just like the people before the flood, self-absorbed. In other words, my moral compass or my own person is the only God that I need to worship. Yeah. And there's some stuff about how Ham takes uh, Noah's clothing. And Hugh Nibley talks about this and the Midrash talks about this, that it wasn't that it made Noah naked, is that it because there's kind of these weird phrases in the Old Testament, but is that he literally took the garment of his, skins. His skin away. Yeah, he took his which garment Which might have meant the garment of skins that God created for Adam. Right, and either he just stole it outright and kept it, or he copied it and then returned the original and kept a copy. But the idea is that Nimrod used that. And in wearing that garment, he was able to, to beguile, his way beguile all these beasts because they trusted people, him. Yep, and convince people that he was a king and got everybody into idol worship. And the whole idea of the idol worship is this tower. And I think about a lot, this a lot today of, when you think of an idol, as uh, Abraham says, right? Because Abraham's father was an idol maker and Abraham challenges his dad and says, why do you worship these idols? They have eyes, but they do not see and they have ears and they do not hear. Yeah, they're images, they're graven images of a person or of God. Yeah, you might've made them, but why you worship them? They're, they can't they're, do anything. They're, the, they're dead. So the idea of an idol is that it'll let you do anything you want. If I say, but I really want to go this other way, tell me not to idol, and then you just do whatever you want. So the idea of an idol is, to put in a modern perspective, follow your heart. Where the idea of God is, do your duty. Or as my brother-in-law likes to say, the church of what's happening now. <laughs> I haven't heard that. But it, yeah, whatever, whatever you feel like follow is right, there is no absolute good. And uh, this is a... This is an idea I find in a lot of modern thinkers that I yeah admire, which is if if obviously we all have a conscience, but if our own judgment is the only compass, is the only measure of what's good, then God doesn't exist, and it can't be the only measure of what if if you as soon as two people disagree, then there is no such thing as absolute right and wrong. Yeah, so I saw this quote that someone had posted on, on Facebook on, on, on the social media and it said it's up to each of us to follow our own heart and find our own true north and I'm like no I mean I didn't say this back to him but I'm, I took a screenshot I'm like no 
there's only one true north. We're not supposed to find our own true north. It's not just whatever we feel or want at the time. We can say, sure, that we're all on our own timetable and at different levels of truth we come to at our own and we can't force people. Yeah, and just because I may have a different understanding of a commandment than you have right. doesn't mean that I have the right one. However, but in it the also end, doesn't mean yeah, it, it also doesn't mean because you and I disagree and we're both listening to the spirit that there's not a truth that that is outside of either of us that does govern. Right. And in fact, uh, what comes into my head anytime I hear this topic discussed, which is this is my truth, is the 93rd section of the Doctrine and Covenants, which says Truth is knowledge of things as they are and as they were and as they are to come. Meaning, truth exists outside of you and me. And the idol, the worship of idols is saying truth exists within you and me. As soon as we create that truth within you and me, as soon as we say there is such a thing as my truth, then we've created an idol. Yeah, it's my opinion and the truth. And the truth as far as I need to go. That's as far as I need to research. I don't need to know God's will on the subject. I don't need to be humble, in other words. There's no need for humility, and that is idol worship. Yeah. So that's one of the big lessons for me when I see, because it's not just an anti-temple. It's a... The Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel is an idol. It's saying, follow your heart. I'm going to do my own thing. And I find it really interesting that they still want to go to heaven, they just want to go to heaven a different way. It's not that they're just like, oh, we're going to dig a pit to hell. It's like, no, we're going to... We want all the good things that God has to bless us with, but we don't want to follow the path he has to receive them. Right. And so in many ways, he's like Barabbas, where Barabbas is called a, a terrorist, and he wants to usurp the government. But that's And we really don't know that much about him and, you know, and a murderer, but that's just on kind of a smaller and level. And Barabbas, as most of you probably know, was the man that was offered as an alternative to freeing Christ, they had to free someone on this Jewish holiday. Is it going to be Christ or is it going to be this man named Barabbas? Yeah. And Barabbas means son of the father in in Hebrew. And so the people have a choice. So he's Satan's Satan's counterfeit. And it's the same thing as the council of heaven. Who are we going to follow? And now we have the same thing here. Who are we going to go to? We're going to go to the real temple or the anti-temple. Yep. And Melchizedek has a competing town called Mount Zion. So we got those two competing ideas, the temple or the anti-temple. And it's, really interesting that there's this actual anti-temple and it's not a pit to me they still want heaven they still want to get up there and his his whole purpose is to get up there and usurp the lord and take over but rather than build spiritual height they want to build physical height yeah and i mean think about what it would take to build the buildings that we built today are many times higher than they could possibly have built and we're no closer to heaven than they were so they they wanted to arrive at heaven by building physical height. Isn't yeah. that interesting? Yeah, and, and 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 it's described as being like a pyramid. It's super big at the base, and it continually gets smaller and smaller and smaller the higher you get. And it was and Josephus describes that it was deceivingly, it looked smaller because it was so big that if you saw it in the distance, it actually thought it was smaller than it was because it was just so tall. And the, the Noah's Ark is actually also designed like a pyramid where it's big at the base, narrow on the next level, and narrow on the next level. So we have these same symbols of a temple over and over and over, a mountain, Noah's Ark, yeah. Mount Zion, and and So he's even copying the symbol of a temple. Even copying it. And then one of the most fascinating things, I think, is that when the Lord destroys the tower, he destroys it in thirds. So he takes a third and he burns it, which is a symbol for hell. And he takes a third and he swallows it up into the earth which is a symbol for hell 
And then he lets the last third just remain as a reminder to everybody not to do this again. <laughs> so the symbol of thirds, you know, a third going this way, a third going that way. Nimrod being a tyrant, Nimrod being a code for Satan. And in the end, it all the end points to the right path. The path is the path of light and the path of the temple. So really what we're on right now is a two-lesson arc, which began last week with the story of Enoch, the city of Zion, and ends this week with this with the story of the Tower of Babel. And the real lesson for me is, number one, like you said, Noah's right in the middle. So right. the temple is unity. And not just unity of man with God, but unity of man with man. Everyone, the pure in heart, are one. They're all willing to be united. And you don't get unity in a family, in a nation, anywhere between two people unless there's humil- there's real humility. And I heard this quote once, and I wish I knew where it was from, but it's always stuck with me, which is, Satan's plan is the plan of guarantees. And I also heard another quote, which is, when God pays us, we you know, when we work for God, we work for free, but when God pays us, he pays us in relationships. And this concept has been growing with me over the last couple of years, but relationships are by their very nature not guaranteed. So Satan wants us to be alone. He wants us to have a plan of guarantees where we separate from everyone and have our own have our own truth, have our own ideas as our moral compass. And God wants us to live where there are no guarantees, where we have to work with each other and we have to be humble and we have to constantly repent and we use God as our moral compass. So that's the city of Zion. That's the temple with Enoch. And then it comes full circle to the Tower of Babel where they're using their own insight, their own direction, and they're following a man who is the epitome of selfishness and a symbol of Satan to say, I am the only person that I need to follow. I meaning each individual, not I, Nimrod, but I, this person building the Tower of Babel. This this tower is my idol, and I am my own God. And it's phrased different ways throughout the scripture, but one of the ways I like from the Book of Mormon is, who is God that he should tell me what to do? And that's the very attitude that Satan wants us to have, is who is God? And Noah, as this symbol right in the middle of somebody who makes peace with God by creating his own temple, his own movable temple that moves with his family. And so we have these relationships where we work and we have no guarantees. We're constantly repenting. And that is Zion. We're building a world together and God brings it up to himself as a complete unit rather than each of us being saved individually. Or we have on the other extreme, the Tower of Babel, where every person is abandoned individually. They all walk, they all go their separate ways, and not even their language matches. They can't even talk to each other, let, a, let alone rise into heaven together. And we think, so many people think, that the Old Testament doesn't say anything about Christ, but Christ is all over this story. He's, he's in every particle of this story, which is God wants to meld our hearts together. He wants to join our hearts as one. And as he says in the book of Isaiah, how I want to gather you as a hen gathereth her chickens. God wants to gather us and make us one 
And that's what Zion means. Final comments. Yeah, it was a really good sum up. For me, the things that always stand out to me are the symbols of light, the symbol of the temple, and us leading us back to God, where Satan, just like you were saying before, Satan wants to say that we're free with his plan, but the truth is we're confined. And he wants to call, he wants to take everything and flip it upside down, right? It's the idea of Babel is confusion, where you don't know what, you confuse light for dark, and you confuse good for evil, where he says that the gospel is confining, but his way is freedom, where the truth is the gospel is freedom, and following Satan is confining. And yeah, it's the path, it's the path of guarantees, yeah. but the only thing you can really guarantee is failure. Because you don't know that you succeed until you actually finish. But if you want to have a guarantee early on before you're done with any task, the only way to guarantee is by not doing the task and and just giving up. Right. And if life, That's Satan's plan. And if decisions have consequence, and you take away the consequence, you take away the meaning of every decision. And if you take away the meaning of every decision, then life is meaningless. And the whole purpose of having two paths, the path of the left and the path of the right, is to not be constrained one way or the other, but to have to be free and to reap the consequences of each. And if it doesn't matter which you choose, then really there is no choice. Yeah, then the life is meaningless, consequences are meaningless, every single decision we make is meaningless, and there's really no reason for us here at all. Well, needless to say, Bri, I think I speak for Bri, we both believe that Life is very much not meaningless, but it does always matter which we choose. Absolutely. And uh, we, we pray that all of you will choose to follow God, choose to believe in Christ, understand the wonderful lessons the Old Testament has to teach us. And we leave this with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music in this episode by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Excellent. Before we stop recording, I have one little thing you could punch in if you think it's interesting. Yeah, let's do it right now. So everybody has an angel name. I, I call them angel names because I don't know what else to call them. But it's where they have a spiritual name and then a physical name. So you have like Noah is Gabriel, right? And Adam is Michael. Jehovah is Jesus. And you'd mentioned Enoch. And Enoch has the absolute best angel name of all time. I don't even know what it is. <laughs> this is the first I've heard of it. Go ahead. It's Metatron. Oh my gosh. So if you're, I actually read this. It's in the book of Enoch. Is it? It's a yeah. It's an apocryphal book. Yeah. No, you're right. I yes. I did read that. Yeah. Elijah is Sandalphon. It That's sounds a, like a transformer. I know, like Metatron. <laughs> <laughs> but you're right. I remember maybe uh, two years ago finding out about the book of Enoch for the first time, and I hate to say I was reading it in sacrament meeting, but I thought, <laughs> you know, the I didn't. Maybe I didn't stick with it long enough, but I didn't find much in there that was very interesting except for oh, the name yeah. Metatron. But I love that. I love that he's called Metatron. <laughs> the Elijah's angel name. Elijah's Sandalphon. And I do think, 
uh, Razael is John because he's called Razael the Revelator. Interesting. And I actually believe he's John the Revelator. Those are just some off my head. Maybe a maybe a better way of saying that would be many prophets in the scriptures have an angel name, but maybe we all do. Maybe we all. What's do. yours, Bry? <laughs> I don't know, but I think Metatron. If I could pick one. When that's I was be a mine. kid, I always wanted to be called Lance. Lance. So Lance, I'll take Lance. I'm gonna also be called Metatron the second. Metatron. Okay. Thanks, Bry. <laughs>